Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with CEO, Chief Strategy Officer, author, speaker, and retired Navy SEAL, Marty Strong. As a novelist, he is the author of Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business, and a second book, Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. Marty's traveled to over 40 countries, been shot at in a few, survived cancer twice, and experienced the loss of his oldest son. He has spent a lifetime meeting challenges head-on, succeeding in three professions, anticipating crisis, and leading through crisis and chaos. He has a lot of great stories and insights. Enjoy this interview. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, too. I, I'm starting to recognize by home decor where people might be, and I'm going to guess that you're in Florida. Mm-hmm. California? <laughs> no. Man, it just it's light and airy, and you got an ocean back there. Virginia Beach. Okay, all right. Well, but it's still you. You have an ocean. Hell yeah. So, well, my my wife loves that whole decor. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm in Kansas City. We're landlocked, so there's no oceans around here. <laughs> I understand. I'm from Omaha. Okay, so you know, you understand. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I I I still to this day go to places with oceans, and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I want to see this all the time. So. But uh, but at any rate, it's great to meet you. Thank you for taking a minute out today. I appreciate it. And we're going to dive right in here. And my first question to you is, the last three years was quite a thing going through COVID. How did you survive it? And how did it change you? Well, I think personally, I was fine. It was the uh, the role of CEO over four different companies that, and seeing the effect on the, the companies just from the standpoint of strategy, business plans, et cetera, but even more so the employees, the um, two, two diverse kinds of companies, one's healthcare and the other one is government contracting focused on training. And the government was pretty good about declaring right off the bat that the, uh, the kinds of contracts we had were considered, I guess, critical to the infrastructure. So, Rather than shut them down and and the contracts, they just told all the instructors to go home and they'd continue to get paid. So that was okay. You know, it took us a month or two to figure that out or find that out. So there was a little bit of nail biting there for a while. And then on the healthcare side, there was the impact on, we focus a lot on long-term care, uh, skilled nursing facilities and real high risk patients coming out of the hospital. So, those are all, those are right, right in the smack dab in the, the bullseye, right? From the, from the standpoint of the, the victims of it from a, um, purely clinical standpoint. So that depleted the number of patients that we were serving because people were staying home. They weren't coming into the facilities we served. So for 2020, it was pretty tough on our employees. It was pretty tough on the doctors and nurses, really tough on the patients we had. And the business, the business is actually kind of, Limped along in about a flat line for that year. Uh, 21 was a little bit more difficult because the COVID burnout on the healthcare side started to drive people away from working. So doctors and nurses that were mostly baby boomer generation started saying, well, why not just retire now? I've had enough. And so they retired. There wasn't enough backfill coming in the other side. Recruiting became a little more difficult. So these were all kind of like mechanical offshoots of all this. Yeah. The um, we had very few, if any, of our uh, at the beginning we had just shy of a thousand employees across all those companies. 
you know, nobody um, was severely harmed by the COVID virus. Uh, we had my family, a few people had it. I eventually had, but I didn't get it until the end of 22. And uh, yeah, so a lot of it was dealing with the systemic ramifications of fear. And from my point of view, it was a lot of media-generated fear. And then these really kind of unprecedented decisions by the government um, writ large and at the state level and, and municipality level, things that they didn't do during the Spanish flu, they didn't do during, during other pandemics and epidemics that nobody would have, I don't think anybody would have predicted, say, in February of 2020 that we would do the things we did. So, yeah, so that was that was really, you know, kind of wrap it all up with a bow that's kind of how it affected me and what i was responsible for and, and my family my my dad we used to watch the chiefs all the time for years and years and he used to always complain that watching the chiefs was having a uh, relationship with misery because they lost all the time then of course we got Mahomes. so i i thought i still can't believe we won that super bowl I kept thinking if we win this Super Bowl, the world's going to come to a halt. And it did. <laughs> Are you talking about the old Lynn Dawson days when you were watching with your dad? Well, that, I mean, I'm talking about the first one that we did, but yeah, the Dawson days were pretty yeah. spectacular because we had that yeah. old stadium up off 18th and Vine and he was smoking cigarettes and drinking a Fanta and just having yeah. a good time. That was back in the reckless days where you could do that, you know, but, um, yeah. so. Let me ask you this, you know, on paper, there's so many things that go into you as a leader of organizations and, and companies and you're a speaker and you're an author, but let's boil this down. I'm going to put you in front of a bunch of third graders at a career day. One of the kids looks up and says, hey, what do you do for a living? How do you answer them? I'd say that I do everything I can every day to help people do better. Okay. Okay. That's so, how we would put it. So let me ask you this. When you were in the third grade, what was your dream? What did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, her name was Trisha Hoffman. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, the only memory I have of, of, of being in the third grade was somehow being fascinated with this red-haired girl that had moved in, and she uh, she was from England. Yeah. So you know, and, and you know how it is out in the square states. You know, in Omaha, if somebody like that shows up, it's oh, it's quite it's quite the thing. Absolutely, it's huge. <laughs> I mean that that's news for a whole lifetime. Um, so let's go back. I mean, you're a Navy SEAL as well. There's a lot of things about you that are pretty spectacular. So I want to go back to the beginning. You're from Omaha. Tell me what the seeds that were put into you to not only be a SEAL, but to come out and to be a you know a leader of 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 business and to write and to speak. How did this happen? My father was a Navy veteran. He was in the War, and my uncle was in the Navy. He was actually uh, an officer who escorted small rubber boats with command marine commandos in world war ii into japanese held islands and he eventually didn't come back from one of those jobs so you know there's there's been navy people in the family for quite a long time the my, my parents were both depression were kids my dad lived on a farm during the depression and so that's the work ethic the you know the job's not over till it's over and uh you know you're not going to complain and whine about going out in a, in a blizzard to help your dad shovel the snow into the driveway so you can get to work even though you're six or seven years old. I mean, it sounds harsh when I say it, but that's the way I was raised. And a lot of my friends were raised the same way. And so what that did is, you know, without knowing it at the time, of course, it started to give me my own kind of sense of values and my own sense of what is 
insurmountable and what isn't insurmountable. And, you know, that kind of leads right into uh, escaping uh, Nebraska and joining the Navy initially to be like my dad, to be a radar operator in, on a ship. And through a mistake of orders after I completed radar, at the time it, it was radar and air traffic control um, school, uh, mistake of orders, I ended up at SEAL training. And they all agreed that it was a mistake. And then they talked me into volunteering. And so instead of following my father's footsteps, I ended up uh, more, fo- more following in my uncle's footsteps, if you think about it, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then did 20 years in that job. And I think, you know, through the selection process, I went back later to be an instructor uh, leading the first phase, which is the, the kind of famous um, phase that has Hell Week and all the main punishment selection process. When you're going through it, you don't really understand what you're learning about yourself because you're just, I mean, I'm 17 years old or whatever. But when I went back as an instructor, man, it was mind-blowing because I'm watching, you know, over 100 kids start every single class. I'm watching them getting whittled down by graduation to 15 or 18 graduates. We had 13 original my class of 126 that started. And you're like, what, what, what's going on? What's happening between their ears? Why are they making these decisions? But then you start, you know, because you're a senior leader, you're, um, job is to sit down and counsel these guys that want to quit. And you start hearing what's coming out of the You know, I actually have a, uh, a, um, speaking presentation I call the voices in your head. And I, I lean on that really, uh, revelation for me because I got to hear what was going on in their minds and they were talking themselves out of doing what they thought they were committed to do. And, and nobody was talking to them. It was all happening in their own. You know, as they'd say in the Navy, they're in brain housing group. And, um, that's when I started to really understand not just me, but any, anybody that was in the SEAL teams that we had all these traits. We had a lot of these behaviors. We had a lot of these capabilities and the resiliency and all that when we showed up. And what the instructors did and the training did was it basically bombarded us with, with mental distractions and disruptions in our, in our self confidence physically breaking us down to accelerate that. And all they were doing was waiting for us to make a decision on whether we were going to listen to the voice or we were going to be the voice. And it's clear as a bell now at, at this point in my life, but you know, I didn't know, but you carry that same thing. I think as a seal into business, you, um, you have a, a kind of a place in your heart for helping people and training people because that's the way the seals work. You know, it's not just nobody left behind, but nobody's going to be left Store the skills they need because you're all going in together in a very small unit. So you're constantly trying to look around everybody. It matter if you're an officer or you have rank uh, responsibilities, you're looking to try to help everybody to get faster, better, neater, smarter, leaner, whatever it takes. And that also translates in, into the commercial world and the non-military life. Absolutely. Who's been kind of a hero for you in your life? a couple of them actually uh i think in uh my very first seal team there was a navy cross winner named bob gallagher who was essentially a wizard at small unit tactics and jungle warfare i think he had six or seven tours in vietnam and very 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 soft-spoken to the point where he had to really lean in to hear him kind of scary in that way um in bald head and he had these really sharp eyes that his nickname was the eagle because he had this kind of look and and yet without making us feel like we're his buddy he 
clearly killed the slowly. He really wanted us to be ready because in his experience, the class that he was teaching might be the last class before somebody, you know, rings the phone and you're off you're off into harm's way. So I I I really I kind of worship the way he, he approached teaching and the influence that he was trying to make and the impact. And so I emulated him. I emulated him all the way through the rest of my career, even when I became an officer later on. And um, one other guy, Duke, Duke Leonard, when I was an officer, he was actually an ex-enlisted officer himself. He'd been in the very end of Vietnam as an enlisted SEAL. Uh, he got the Silver Store in Grenada. He was um, he was very he was cerebral, but in not in a bombastic or verbal way. He he was thinking all the time. He was planning all the time. He was also considered a really good, big, complex mission planner, uh, where Bob Gallagher was more of the small unit in the moment kind of temptation. And those two kind of rounded out my, my, uh, my top influences. And ironically, my wife bumped into one of them in a SEAL reunion about six years ago, and they were sitting next to each other. Wow. Yeah. I mean, figure the odds. And she, yeah. she said, do you know my husband? And he was, oh, yeah, we know Marty. And so she grabbed me, brought me over, and there they were, sitting there side by That's side. So cool. my, my main enlisted influence and my main officer influence. So those are, those are the two. So they obviously are men that are highly driven. What's your drive? What is it that has always been a motivator for you to get up and to accomplish what you do every day? Well, I think it goes back to that answer to the third grade class. I, I've done one of these things, these exercises called the uh, seven whys, where you, you try to get to the core of what it is that drives you. And and when I did it the first time, it came down to, I went to influence. And I think that's, it. you know, making people better, making things better. I want to influence events and individuals in a very positive way. It, it's a natural compulsion for me. I don't remember doing it when I was a kid or a teenager, but so I must have picked it up sometime through the SEAL experience. But I mean, I help people all the time. I do pro bono consulting. I, I, I help people. I've got two guys figuring out how to read books and all they are published authors. Uh, I, and yeah, you know, I just do it because if they ask, I'm in. Yeah. You know, what can I do to help? Yeah. If, if you can meet anybody alive on the planet right now and spend some time with them, who would it be? Alive. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, hmm. I know this is going to sound kind of strange, but maybe Henry Kissinger. Okay. Yeah, just because he's alive, and I know he's coherent and still sharp. I think he just went to China a couple of weeks ago. That guy saw so much history. Yeah, and was and was attached to some very interesting leaders in the government. I'd just like to sit down and see whether he thinks everything we all hear about geopolitics is a bunch of BS. Yeah, my guess is it will be. Most masters of anything have boiled it down to a couple, you know, three simple steps. Yeah, it'd be interesting yeah. to see what he has to say. Yeah, absolutely. So, of all the things that you've done professionally and accomplished, what are you the proudest of? Well, I think the proudest is probably bringing all my guys back from combat alive, unscathed. Um, I've never, I you know, I didn't think I was going to get through it without anything, but uh, luck and you know. You know, the, the Lord above and everything else thrown in there and all of our training. So that's probably the first thing. Cause you know, if you get a chance to do, do that, to lead troops in combat, to lead men in combat, if you're the leader, 
you, you focus on the mission, but you're also in the back of your mind. Is this the one? Is this the one where you make the stupid, the stupid mistake? You make the bad call. You didn't pay attention. You missed the tell. And all of a sudden, boom, somebody's not here. So I think that, that still sticks out as the number one. The next one would just be being a father. You know, I got five kids and five grandkids and, and I have a great relationship with all of them. And, uh, my dad and I did not have a great relationship. We, you know, I didn't. I saw other people that had relationships with other guys that I knew that had good relationships with their fathers, but I didn't have that. So I'm I'm kind of proud of the fact that I was able to change that, you know, yeah. that uh, destiny a little bit. And uh, I'm friends with all of them. So let's say you have a dream tonight. You run into the 20 year old version of yourself, and you could give that young version of you a piece of advice based on the life you've lived, the wisdom you've gained. What would you tell that young version of you? Other than Apple computer. Um, yeah. <laughs> Get the stock um, now. <laughs> it's actually the same advice that I tell people in presentations, guys that are getting out of the service. I do a lot of work with that, especially the SEAL Foundation or SEAL Veterans Foundation. And young guys that are thinking of getting out of high school and going into the Navy, they're the same kind of conversation, right? There's the self doubt. I, I can't I can't become a SEAL or I can't get into college or I'm gonna get out of, get out of a twenty year career and nobody's gonna hire me. I, I won't know what to do. But there's a lot of self doubt. And it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how old you are. It's the same kind of human reaction to you're on the edge of the cliff of unknown and destiny somewhere out there in the darkness and you're like that's how you feel about it, right? So I just tell everybody, you know, if you just think of life as a whole list, a whole line of incremental moments and incremental choices don't think of it as a be all end all choice you don't have one choice you could go to college you could quit you could go to another college you could quit you can go to another to a trade school graduate and then you can decide to join the marine Corps and be a marine you know for 10 years and then you can get out and then you can go become an air traffic controller i mean there's nothing in at least in this country there's nothing that stops you from doing what you want to do and trying different things you just have to think that way you have to be open-minded about the opportunities yeah. and you also have to give yourself a break you have to become apprentice at anything new that means you're not going to be an expert you're not going to be the best you're going to be an idiot for a while when i tell people that are, are transitioning at later ages i i say well whatever you're doing now how were you the first day or first week or first month were you on top of your game were you running the place well no there you go same thing you want you want to change channels in your life be an apprentice so as an author, what was the first book you read when you were young that really kind of opened the doors to you to either make you want to read more or write? Probably a lot of um, Robert Louis Stevenson books. And then later, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. It's terrible. Um, H.G. Wells. Yeah. For two different reasons. One was about fantasy and you know crazy islands and time machines and things like that and in this the kind of the promise of science fiction uh hg wells is is kind of crazy if you really look at all of his books and most people don't realize he wrote them in the late 1800s so he was talking about time travel and all kinds of different things that and 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 aspects of his books and and things in his books that have actually come to to pass that nobody was thinking about at the time Kind of like an uh, like an Isaac Asimov, you know. Yeah. The, lots of these guys are eight, lots of these guys are futurists. So I think those are probably the two authors, and any of the books that they had out there, I, I read. And 
and in a couple of cases they had movies made out and I'd watch the movies with my dad. So yeah, I think that's that's probably who influenced me the most when I was really young. That's a that's a perfect segue into my next question. If you could get into a time machine and go back in time and see any event in human history with your own eyes, where are you going? Hmm. I would probably I probably want to go to either the Last Supper or to the morning when the uh, the stone was rolled away from Jesus' tomb. You're the second person to say that today. That's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Who was the other one? A gas attendant? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you may ask these questions of everybody you run into. What's that? I said, you may ask these questions of everybody you run into. I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's get to the therapy question of the day here. And it's this. Everyone has a perception of you. You have all these groups of people, family, friends. You have uh, colleagues, clients, but you run the show. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? I think I'm a, a very lighthearted, easygoing, poised leader personality both in my family and obviously in business and i think my perception of myself is probably way off from what everybody else thinks because everybody else thinks that i'm i'm unflappable that nothing nothing disturbs me no matter what happens or how bad it is and it does it does disturb me it does hit me it does you know but i just i have to decide whether i'm going to uh take counsel of my fears or whether I'm just going to sit back and think it through. And, and I do that in pretty quick time these days. Another, another thing you learn in the SEAL teams is judgment and uh, applied, applied wisdom in the, in the middle of the firefight, right? Or just before everything falls apart. Yeah. You don't have time to have a committee meeting. So I think most people think I'm very cool and even handed and emotional. And I don't think I'm that at all. I think I, I think I'm managing all that chaos you know, in my mind all the time, every day, from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep. Yeah, for sure. So Marty, if anyone wants to learn more about you, get involved with your books, anything pertaining to your world, where can they go? So the books are all on amazon.com, but if you go to martystrongbenimble.com, all my books are there, um, articles, access to my speaking uh, programs, martystrongbenimble.com. Right on. Marty, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, music, and more from around the globe. Our esteemed theme music was composed and produced by the great E.E. Pointer of Kansas City's River Cow Orchestra. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Mm